Welcome to Present Value. Hey listeners, I'm Steven Van Vechten, an MBA student at Johnson and president of our marketing association. I'm really excited to share Present Value's latest episode with Cornell alumna Irene Rosenfeld, the former chairman and CEO of Kraft Foods and Mondelez. In this episode, host Serena Ilavia and Irene have a great conversation about her 20 years in the food industry, the decision to split Kraft into two companies, and the evolving trends in food. Irene is very close to Cornell, so this semester, Johnson marketing students, including myself, had the unique opportunity to hear from Irene about her career and the future of food. I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. Irene Rosenfeld is a 36-year veteran of the food industry, most recently serving as the chairman and CEO of the food and beverage company Mondelez from 2012 to 2017. Prior to Mondelez, she was the chairman and CEO of Kraft Foods before deciding to split the company into two, which led to the creation of Mondelez. Before her time at Kraft, Irene was the chairman and CEO of snack company Frito-Lay, a division of PepsiCo. During her time in executive leadership, Rosenfeld oversaw the complex acquisition of the English candy company Cadbury, rapidly evolving trends in the food and beverage industry, and dealt with multiple activist investors. During her time at Mondelez, she led the company to 20 out of 21 quarters of revenue growth, 600 plus basis points of margin improvement, and returned $18 billion of shareholder value. She holds an undergraduate degree in psychology, a master's of science in business administration, and a PhD in marketing and statistics, all from Cornell University. She has endowed the Irene Blecker Rosenfeld Chair in Psychology, which is currently held by Professor Tom Gilovich, a former Present Value guest. Irene currently sits on the board of Qualcomm and Teach for America. Irene, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So this is probably the hardest question you'll answer all of today, but what is your favorite Oreo flavor? I'm a, I'm a purist, despite the fact that I have been responsible for authoring a lot of different flavors. Uh, I'm still the, the fundamental vanilla, although I must say that mint is a close second. So let's start with taking our listeners back to 2006, when you became the CEO of Kraft. You inherited a company with a broad range of grocery products, stagnant growth, and little product innovation. What was the first thing you did when you arrived at Kraft? First thing I did was uh, go on a listening tour. There's no question that the folks that are in the company typically know best what's the matter and what needs to be done to fix it. And so I traveled around the world talking about what was wrong, what needed to be changed, and what they thought were the opportunities. In particular, under a tobacco company ownership, which Kraft had been for 20 years, the brands really had not been sufficiently invested in. And so these iconic brands like Kool-Aid and Jell-O and Maxwell House and Kraft Cheese had been grossly underinvested in at a time that competitors were making sizable investments in competitive products. And so one of the very first things I did was to reinvest in these iconic brands because without the fundamental infrastructure of the brand equity, the rest of the value creation was academic. So when you talk about reinvesting in a brand, is that a 
marketing investment, a financial investment? What exactly does that mean and what did it look like for the craft brands? It actually was a variety of different things. It started with product quality. These are brands that had not had major quality investments in a number of years. Not a lot of innovation had been done on them. Our, our Milka brand in Europe had not innovated for 10 years prior to my coming back. And so it was a combination of investment in brand equity, in product quality, in product innovation, all of which really helped to revitalize these iconic brands. A major decision you made in your career was to acquire Cadbury, the British candy company. What was the driving force behind this acquisition? Well, when I came back to Kraft, it was a fairly disparate set of assets in a variety of different product categories, many of which were not on trend with consumer behavior. One of the things that was most interesting to me, I had been involved in the early 2000s with the acquisition of the Nabisco business under Altria. And one of our reasons for being interested in that business is that snacking was clearly a growing behavior in many markets around the world. Increasingly, consumers were on the go. More women were in the workforce. People were traveling longer distances. And as a result of that, traditional meals were declining and snacking was a very important set of growing behaviors. And so I was very drawn to the opportunity to essentially double down on snacking to not only Nabisco was a very vibrant asset here in the U.S., but we didn't have a very strong snacking footprint elsewhere in the world. And so Cadbury was an opportunity for us to do two things. Number one, to double down on snacking particularly chocolate, but also to double down our footprint in emerging markets, which was clearly the growth engine as we looked at the future of food. Now, as we saw when the acquisition process was going on, many people were opposed to it, including major investors, the British parliament, unions. And the opposition from the press was so strong that you actually would stay in hotels outside of London and use an assumed identity to check in. So it seems that this acquisition added a lot of bureaucratic complexity to execute and integrate. Why did you keep pushing for it? With an acquisition of that magnitude, it's never a guarantee. And so we certainly had plans B and C. But there were few assets that in one fell swoop could strengthen our position in snacking as well as increase our emerging markets footprint. And that was the real interest for us. As it turned out, I made the bid for a Cadbury during an election year. And so the the interest of the parliament was a lot more about electioneering than it actually was about our acquisition. But it did create an incredible amount of controversy. A lot of the Brits kind of wrapped themselves in the Union Jack. They were very worried about what this brazen American woman was going to do to their curly whirlies. But the truth of the matter is, I said at the time, that our interest was in reinvigorating and reinvesting in these iconic brands. And that, in fact, is what we have done. And I would say the shares of Cadbury today are considerably stronger than they were at any time in the brand's history. So the fact that Cadbury is based in the UK must have made this transaction more difficult, right? There were a lot of complexities to this particular acquisition. It started, it was a cash and stock transaction. So the value of the offer changed daily based on the the, uh, the, the, the exchange rate for the pound sterling as well as on our stock price. In fact, early on, we had looked at this acquisition 
as early as 2008, and the, the, the pound sterling was just too strong. And so it was a very challenging set of economics that were involved. It was also governed by four different regulatory bodies, two here in the U.S. and two in the U.K., none of whom had the very same filing requirements. And it was a transatlantic deal. And so I would go to bed at night thinking everything was fine. And I'd wake up in the morning and found out that uh, all hell had broken loose on the other side of the pond. So it was a, um, a challenging transaction. And, you know, not the least of which, we had made a hostile offer. And it was really important to us that we have a recommended deal, that a deal that would be recommended by the Cadbury board at the end of the day, because that was going to be critical to the seamless integration of the two companies. And fortunately, all of that worked out, and the rest, as they say, is history. Ultimately, the decision that largely defined your career was to split Kraft into two companies, one that would focus on snacks and one for the grocery business. So I understand that the catalyst for this was a 2010 management meeting. Can you walk our listeners through this meeting and how you arrived at the decision? Well, in the early days of integrating Cadbury, once we had picked the management teams, and we worked very hard to create what we called best of both, which was truly a representative set of management teams that had come from the best of both companies. But increasingly, it became clear that the North American assets included a whole bunch of categories that our international colleagues knew nothing about. Jello, Miracle Whip, salad dressing, Maxwell House coffee. And we happen to have had a uh, uh, one of our very first management meetings of the new company in the summer of 2010. And I noticed as we were sharing stories that the Oscar Mayer guys had absolutely no interest in hearing about Cadbury chocolate and vice versa. And it became increasingly clear to me that there were not enough common threads underpinning the two companies. And in fact, there were so many more similarities between Oreo in the U.S. and Oreo internationally than there was between U.S. products, Oscar Mayer products, and other U.S. products, for example. And you have a fun story of how the name Mondelez came to be. Can you tell us uh, the background on that? Well, as we thought about splitting the company, we decided that we would call the grocery business Kraft. And so we needed a name for the new snacking company. And rather than hire some highfalutin, expensive consulting company, we decided to have an employee contest. We opened it up to our employees around the world. And the winning entry was actually selected by an employee here in the U.S., as well as somebody in Europe. And the idea was Mondelez, Delicious World. We didn't want to pick the name of any one brand because we really felt that this was going to be a house of brands. We didn't think the name of the company was really going to be a consumer-facing idea. It was really meant to be an employer brand and an umbrella for all of these iconic brands like Oreo and Cadbury and Milka and Ritz and Triscuit, etc., and so anyway, that's how we selected the name. It was always uh, a bit of a challenge because Americans are not very adept at foreign languages. And so very few American commentators, if any, could actually pronounce the name of the company. 
But it turned out to be a really good name, particularly as we were rallying the excitement of our international colleagues, because it had an international ring to it. They understood what it meant. And it was important that it be something new that wasn't encumbered by the potential baggage of Cadbury or Oreo or some of the other assets that were in the portfolio. So as you set out to split the company that had become a juggernaut in the food industry, what challenges did you face? Well, you know, I think a lot of people ask, how did you decide to to, to do it? It was not a very common idea at that time. There were many companies that were conglomerates that had become the uh, scale was believed to be important, and that had become the preferred corporate format. And we made the decision. um, We thought long and hard about it. In fact, our board asked us when we talked about splitting the company, the board pushed back quite a bit because they, they asked, well, it's a lot of work to split a company. And would it not be possible to run these two businesses differently, even under the same roof? But we clearly had one business, our North American grocery business, that was going to be slower growth, very margin-focused, very cash-generative, and then another business that was going to be emerging markets-focused, high-growth snacking. And we made the decision that trying to run those two businesses under the same roof would be very challenging. It required very different management styles. It required very different leaders. And ultimately, we made the decision that splitting the company would create greater value. And I would say the the results um, would speak for themselves in that regard. So here at Johnson, we talk a lot about synergies. And it seems like the first order commentary would be, wait a minute, what about the back office synergies? And what about the production synergies? What are your thoughts on that when it came to splitting the company yeah. in two? So there were certainly what we call dissynergies inherent in splitting the company, not the least of which is that we were able to amortize a lot of corporate services across a broader portfolio. But beyond that, most of the other assets were really assigned to a particular business. So, for example, we had very few factories that were a combination of food and snacks. And so when it came time to split the assets of the two companies, it was pretty clear what needed to go where. So we did have some remaining unabsorbed overhead. And I would say if you talk to anyone who has been involved in the split of the company, that is often one of the biggest challenges But beyond that, which we were able to eliminate that in short order, beyond that, most of the other assets separated themselves quite nicely. But I I did joke that it was a bit of a Noah's Ark. We had two of everything. And I remember we had uh, our final checkoff meeting with our board in September of 2012, just before we split in October. And we needed to certify that we were ready and that the two companies could, in fact, operate when uh, trading began. And I was just really thrilled. The, the, uh, it was an inordinate amount of work, but I was really pleased with the work of the team. So you were one of the early proponents of zero-based budgeting, which is the process of resetting your budget to zero and justifying each line item every period. Why was that important to implement? In some respects, zero-based budgeting is just good housekeeping. And often companies... After years and years, some of these budgets gentrify, and each year's, the next year's budget just becomes a derivative of the prior year. And it's often helpful to just stop 
and be able to take stock of where you are. So in our case, because we had grown through acquisition, we had a lot of costs that had built up over time. It was very cathartic to be able to look at our whole cost structure. The other benefit that we had in doing zero-based budgeting is that it is a fairly rigorous process that can be benchmarked. And so we were able to look at all our different line items. And whereas in the past, we would have looked from one part of the company to the other, we now could look at best-in-class companies and to look at what their travel budgets might look like or what their postage budgets might look like. And that really encouraged us to then look at some new tactics that we wouldn't necessarily have thought of. I don't think zero basing is something, it's quite a rigorous exercise. It takes a lot of organizational energy, and I don't think it's something you want to be doing every year. But I do think it is something that you can benefit from by just cleaning house every uh, couple of years. It's become very popular lately in the business press to criticize zero-based budgeting for potentially starving growth at companies. But by the end of your time at Mondelez, you achieved 600 basis points of margin improvement and achieved 20 out of 21 quarters of revenue growth, quite the opposite of starving growth. How did you implement zero-based budgeting differently? Well, zero-based budgeting is just the act of seeing how you're spending your money, what decisions you make about how to spend that money are up to you. And so I think the concept did get a bad name from some companies that essentially cut to the bone, that cut all short-term costs in favor of margin. We set out to create a more balanced model because I truly believe the only way to create an enduring company is to ensure that you continue to invest even while you are improving your margin. And in so doing, it allowed us to continue to make investments in our franchises. It allowed us to plant seeds for future growth that are just now beginning to bear fruit. And so it's not zero-based budgeting per se that is an issue. It is exactly how you implement it and how much of the savings you take to the bottom line as opposed to reinvestment. I'd also tell you one of the keys for us in getting our colleagues on board with this whole endeavor was they're seeing that some of the money they were saving was actually being reinvested in them. And that went a long way toward enlisting their help in terms of uh, helping us to find areas of saving opportunity. And you implemented zero-based budgeting during a pretty large macroeconomic decline. What other strategies did you implement to come out of this economic cycle and land on top? Well, we, we invested in a number of white space markets. So, for example, we invested in biscuits in India. We invested in biscuits in China. Many of our when we bought the Cadbury business, as I mentioned, we were interested in expanding our emerging markets footprint. And in fact, about 40% of our sales today comes from the emerging markets. But many of these markets are single product countries. So India was a chocolate country. China was a biscuit country. And so some of our investments were designed to then establish one of our other categories, in the case of India, our biscuit category, in the case of China, our chocolate category, or our gum category, a lot of our investment was designed to then create a foothold 
in these second and third uh, categories so that we had more scale within each of the emerging markets. And that, as a result, typically those investments take time. You have to create brand awareness. You often have to stand up a manufacturing facility. You often have to create a new selling organization to sell more than one category. And so all of those investments took some time to gestate. So shifting topics to today's food industry, a recent trend has been towards health and wellness. How do you view snacking fitting into these changing consumer preferences? Well, snacking is 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 simply about eating non-traditional meals. It, nobody says what exactly those meals are comprised of. And so the the notion that snacking is inherently not healthy is really not right. It's up to us to do uh, to to leverage our technology. For example, we created a uh, a product called Belvita, which is a breakfast biscuit. It's got a, a special formula that allows the glucose to break down at a more constant rate so that you feel satiated for longer periods of time. The ability to use those kinds of technologies or our ability to put more whole grain into a Triscuit or into a, a Ritz cracker without compromising taste Leveraging those technologies is critical to our ability to then provide snacks for today's consumer that have the characteristics that, uh, that he or she is looking for. So when we think about product innovation and adapting products, how do you strike that balance between creating a new product versus adapting a core product to fit a trend? You have to do both. It's all about putting the consumer at the center of what you do. I mean, one of the interesting challenges with health and wellness is that consumers all want to eat healthy, but they also don't want to compromise on taste. And so often people will tell you they want something, but their behavior uh, would suggest otherwise. So it's a combination of making sure we are observing what people are eating, what are the competitive products they might be eating that we don't have in our portfolio. So, for example, Tate's uh, was an acquisition that the company made most recently. It happens to be a higher-end set of biscuits. Even in the current environment of, uh, of, of well-being, people are eating products like Tate's because they're delicious, but they are real they have real ingredients they have natural ingredients in them and but it still allows the consumer to snack so it's about monitoring what people are are doing and uh, what what they their needs are and making sure that the portfolio is robust enough to address the variety of needs that uh, that that need to be satisfied now, Mondelez operates on an international scale, and a trend that we see is the growing income gap in many countries, which can sometimes prevent lower-income individuals from accessing certain nutritional foods. How did you think about these challenges at both Kraft and Mondelez? Well, we were really focused increasingly in the early days. Almost all of our products were derivative of American products. They were typically family-sized, Walmart-sized, if you will. Increasingly, as we uh, expanded our footprint internationally, particularly in the emerging markets, we found that the coinage needs of our offerings was really important. And so we needed to make smaller pack sizes that would sell for one rupee or one yuan in, uh, in China. And so the products were then typically made sometimes a little bit smaller. Uh, for example, we, we, we played around with the diameter of our Oreo product 
But it also allowed us to then make smaller pack size offerings, which then had a smaller out-of-pocket outlay for uh, consumers in these um, more challenged economic environments. We've become so accustomed to buying products through e-commerce. But with very few exceptions, it hasn't really taken off yet for food. So you started an e-commerce division at Mondelez. Can you share with us some examples of innovations in e-commerce that you developed at Mondelez and touch on how this connects to the future of snacking? What we did find, first of all, e-commerce clearly is a factor in snacking. And as the world's largest snacking company, we felt it was important that we participate in all growth channels. And so for that reason, we jump-started an opportunity. It was particularly relevant in markets like China. In China, the e-commerce is is closer to 12% of the snacking business. And so that was the first place we went thinking about our opportunity. We also found gifting, which is a very common behavior in Asia. The internet was particularly well-suited to gifting items. And so we, for example, one of our first offerings was a a, a tin of Oreos that people could give for Chinese New Year or for Diwali. And we are finding, we are continuing to see that that is still some of our best business, but we do quite a vibrant business out of Cadbury in the UK focused on personalized chocolate bars. People order them for their weddings, for example. And so that for us in the foreseeable future, that's the biggest opportunity. It's not about habitual behavior that you might see for other food categories or for non-food like diapers. But we wanted to just make sure that we were everywhere that our consumers wanted to shop. Many of our customers use what's called bricks and clicks. And so, for example, customers like Tesco or Walmart allow the consumer to order the product online and then pick it up in their stores. And that's an increasingly viable opportunity for for us. So we're experimenting with a variety of ways of delivering our products. But to date, it's just e-commerce is not nearly the channel play that it is in electronics, for example. By the end of your career, you had done close to 50 earnings calls and dealt with your fair share of activist investors. As we know, activist investors often pressure management to significantly change course in strategy. Some of the ideas that activists had for your company ranged from ramping up cost-cutting to selling your business. With so many voices at the table, how did you separate the noise from the legitimate critiques of the company and operate a successful business? I think it's really important that you always be prepared to act as your own activist. And so the first, my first advice to my company and to any others that are dealing with folks on the outside with different ideas is to look objectively at the business and understand what they might criticize about the business and think about what aspects of those criticisms are valid. In our case, part of why I chose to embrace some of our activist investors is that one of their important investment ideas was to improve margin, which at a time where the growth was slowing because of the category macros, it made sense for us to pivot our focus toward margin. And so what a number of the investors were asking for was very consistent with what we ourselves were already doing. I think where a company 
can sometimes get into trouble is in their desire to quiet the activist investors because they do speak with a rather large stick. Sometimes to do things that are not right for the company or not consistent with the long-term health of the of, of the company. And that's when you get into trouble because ultimately, as the leader of the company, I owned our direction and it was up to me to make sure that whatever we were choosing to do with the assets would create long-term value. And you've discussed before that people need to engage with the activists. Yes. And that while many of them have not run businesses before, they can have good ideas and they have really strong relationships with institutional investors. I mean, these guys get around and, and you know, there's a lot of money, particularly in hedge funds these days. So they are they are out and about with our investors and one needs to listen to what they have to say. Again, you don't have to do everything that they are suggesting and especially if they're suggesting something that is not right for the business. But it is important that you listen. And as we've previously talked about, being a CEO of a Fortune 200 company, it opens you up to a lot of public criticism. What advice would you have for somebody that is stepping into a similar role? Have a thick skin. I think that there's, I used to laugh before I bought Cadbury. I used to laugh that I loved reading the National Enquirer about the royal and, and learning about the royal family until one day I was reading about myself. And uh, it's a little bit different when you read about yourself and sometimes the narratives about you that are not necessarily accurate. But you have to have a thick skin and you, and you just need to be able to get on. I think the big challenge I faced was how much of what might have been in the public domain I needed to correct, particularly for my employees. So, you know, she did this, she did, she said that. In some cases, I felt compelled to uh, issue internal documents to say, hey, no, that's not our position or we're not doing that. But th in this age of social media, I think we're more, we're, we're, we're more vulnerable than ever before. And as a public figure, that just goes with the territory. And... There are certain topics in your industry that are always going to be lightning rods for criticism, like factory closures. Yes. How do you prepare for and respond to those inevitable criticisms? You have to have done your homework. And, you know, I think you have to be empathetic. I can't tell you how many annual meetings I presided over, particularly as we were building some new facilities in Mexico and we had colleagues in uh, in Chicago there were there were erroneous rumors that we were closing our Chicago factory it was not true it was a classic case where social media kind of takes on a life of its own and we felt compelled to to correct the record but at the same time many of these uh, our colleagues showed up at our annual meetings and expressed their frustration and it was just really important that I be clear that I listened that I had clearly heard them and that I did the best job I could of explaining our position and why we had done what we could. And after that, you just have to just accept it. So you mentioned social media earlier. And operating a company today in social media is very different than what maybe your predecessors have had to do. And especially for a consumer packaged goods company where social media has really changed how you interact with your customers. So you've talked about some positives before, right? The 2013 Super Bowl Oreo campaign, you can still dunk in the dark, but you've also shared with us some of the negatives. For example, when someone tweeted in Malaysia that Mondelez products were no longer halal. How do you think about operating a company in this age of social media? You've got to keep your ear to the ground. And, you know, one of the big debates is which of the information to respond to, you can't respond to all of it. 
And it was really the, we made the decision for those topics where we really felt the reputation of the company was being called into question, we felt compelled to address the issue. So I'll give you an example. We had a, a very unique skew for a customer in the UK called Foodland. It was a 2000 ton skew. I mean, it was tiny. And we decided to stop making it. And we caught enormous flack. How could you stop this? How did you, you know, why are you picking on Foodland? And it just turned into a whole conversation about price value and the fact that we had somehow changed the mold of our Toblerone product and, and it, it, it used to have three peaks and now it only had two peaks. And it went, it became a whole subject of downsizing and trying to cheat the consumer that was absolutely not at the root of the decision. And we just felt compelled to set the record straight on that case because it the whole topic took on a life of its own. It became, I started getting letters from, uh, you know, from uh, m- members of parliament again, my friends there. How could you do this? And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know. So you, you have to really decide where are the uh, conversations that have potential reputational implications where you need to set the record straight and where which are the ones you just have to let go. And a time where social media really benefited you was that Dunk in the Dark campaign yes, during the yes. Super Bowl. How was that born? How did it come to be? Of Some very creative members of our Oreo team were watching the Super Bowl and uh, and just jumped on it. I was just so proud that they took the initiative. They didn't ask permission. They just did it. And I think the hallmark of good marketers and good marketing is when you feel like you have that flexibility and that authority to be able to jump on opportunity. So moving to your time in leadership, over your 36 years in the food industry, you mentored by the latest count 16 individuals, and this seems to be a moving number, who went on to become CEOs of companies, ranging from Bob Gamgore of Cary Green Mountain to Michelle Buck of Hershey. How did you foster a leadership-oriented environment amid the pressures of activist investors, foreign governments, and even just the daily duties of being a CEO? Aside from creating great shareholder value, the most rewarding part of a job like mine is the legacy that you leave, and it's about the people. And so I was very proud to have had the good fortune to work with some very talented leaders and to be able to share with them and mentor them the learning that I had gotten. And I'm just so proud to see how many of them have gone on to uh, to have very, very successful careers in their own right. And as a mentor, you thought a lot about what skill sets will they need when they ultimately become a CEO. So you've mentioned before that you brought them into activist meetings. Can you share a little more about giving them access to these experiences that they would ultimately face as CEOs? You know, I had lots of conversation along the way, particularly with some of our board members talking about should they hear about the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I really felt like there's no substitute for sitting as close to the chair as you can sit until you're actually in the chair. There's no question that there are certain aspects of the job that you just can't prepare for until you're literally, the buck stops with you. But I would say that I did the best I could to expose my key talent to uh, be able to experience some of what I saw and to be able to, to benefit from that. 
So in terms of bringing them into these experiences and saying that, you know, there's no other experience other than actually sitting in the chair yourself, how do you know when they're ready for a CEO job? I think a critical piece of making succession decisions is, first of all, succession often has a temporal component. The appropriate successor at one point in time is not necessarily the right person at a different point in time. So a key piece for me as I was looking at my own succession was talking with my board about what I thought, where I thought the company needed to go, what skills I thought the next leader should have. And then we use that uh, in, in essence as a scorecard against which to evaluate our candidates both internally and externally. I don't think there's any hard and fast set of criteria. I think it depends on a particular company at a point in time. You spent a really long time here at Cornell working towards your undergraduate, graduate, and Ph.D. degrees. Can you share with our listeners why you chose to pursue a Ph.D. in marketing and statistics? I can share that. The, 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 the reality is, is the question is not so much why did I do it, but rather why didn't I teach after I did it? And uh, the fact is I was always excited about industry. In fact, the thesis that I wrote, the data that I used was real-world data that a um, magazine company had collected. And I was interested in studying problems that I thought would be relevant in the real world. And so I was intrigued by the opportunity to learn something in depth. I was a consumer researcher by training and really understanding the ins and outs of these marketing models, these econometric models, was really helpful to me in my early days in consumer research. As it's now turned out, Digital marketing is predicated on a lot of these same models, and so it's turned out to be rather useful training. But I really was excited about the opportunity to, to learn in more depth than one can get in an MBA program about a topic that was of, of great interest to me. So after all of those years of schooling, what has been the biggest benefit in having a Ph.D.? Well, I, I, you know, I, it, it certainly makes restaurant reservations a little bit easier. A lot, a lot of, a lot of restaurants like people whose names are Doctor Something. But uh, I seriously, I, for me, I think the uh, discipline and the self confidence that came from working with my advisor, Vitala Rao, who is a pretty demanding fellow, that experience of defending myself and having the courage to ask difficult questions has served me exceptionally well throughout my career. And I think that's just turned out to be a byproduct. It's not one I necessarily could have told you about when I got started, but I think it worked out well. And on the topic of analytics, one of your former direct reports, Tom Ledden, who went on to become the CEO of LendingTree, said this about you in an interview. He said, she was a creative thinker, but also really strong on data and analytics. I think it helped her develop people under her to get them to think creatively and analytically. At a consumer packaged goods company with so much market insight data, having those analytic skills is really important. What tools did you regularly implement when you were there regarding data analytics? Well, I would have given my eye teeth way back when to have the kind of data that is available today. But certainly, marketing decisions are so much easier when you actually have access to data. So one of the very first things that I 
worked on when I was a young marketer was a, a frequent, what we called at the time, a frequent flyer program for Kool-Aid called the Wacky Warehouse. And the whole idea was that we thought we could get kids to drink more Kool-Aid if they could get stuff with their points. And so it was in the early days of, of loyalty programs that the airlines and the hotels were just beginning. And this was the first one that had, uh, had come out that was targeted to kids. And we were able to do all kinds of research about what are the kinds of toys that kids liked. We had partnerships with a lot of the key toy companies like Fisher-Price and Mattel. And that ability to test the ideas ahead of time, to screen through a variety of different concepts, all of that allowed us to be so much more effective with our marketing programming. And you shared a really fun story about Kool-Aid with current MBA students at lunch today about making invisible Kool-Aid yes. and how that didn't exactly work out. Can you share with our listeners what happened there? Well, you know, the number one challenge with Kool-Aid is that it stains. So the impossible dream was always to figure out a non-staining Kool-Aid. But invariably, at the time, there were not that many natural dyes available, and even they had some issues with them. And so we, we, were, we used to rack our brains to think about what could we do, because invariably, Kool-Aid was not, a lot of parents would not serve Kool-Aid in their house because they were worried about uh, what the kids would do on the rug. So we finally decided if we could make what we called invisible Kool-Aid, which was basically Kool-Aid without food coloring, we could solve our problems. But of course, it failed miserably because the whole excitement of Kool-Aid is the color. And uh, so it's a classic case where you, know, you think you are solving a problem that truly you're not doing what you thought you were trying to do. So it's been about a year since you retired from Mondelez, and you recently joined the boards of Qualcomm and Teach for America. Why did you choose those two companies? They're just two areas that I'm passionate about. You know, I've been thinking about food for almost 40 years, and I wanted to think about something else. I'm really fascinated by technology and the role it's playing in our lives and, and the capabilities it will enable. And so I was looking for a company that would be sort of at the forefront of technology, and, uh, and Qualcomm has turned out to be that. They were the pioneers of mobile phones, of each of the generations of mobile phones. They are now the pioneers in this country of 5G, the next network capabilities. And I find it fascinating to think about some of the issues that they are facing. That said, they have some of the very same issues that we face. They have irate investors. They have spats with some of their key customers. But it's it's fascinating to think about technology. Um, they're at a, an exciting crossroads in their future as they think about moving beyond phones into the Internet of Things, into automotive, and I'm very excited to help them. And Teach for America is just, uh, I am passionate about education. I, I really believe that this country, the quality of education in this country needs to improve, particularly in our inner cities. And I think Teach for America has proven to have tremendous staying power and tremendous leadership development. And I'm excited to be a part of their journey in, in terms of thinking about their issues, how to bring some of the learning from the corporate world into the education sphere. So I'm enjoying spending my time there. And then I have two little grandbabies who, oh, wonderful. Uh, who are, uh, are taking up my time. And there's nothing more delicious than that. Delicious world, like Mondelez. <laughs> exactly. That's a really delicious world. <laughs> 
So before I let you go, my last question, what other final thoughts do you have for our listeners as current and future leaders in the business world? Well, I think business is an incredibly satisfying career. I think I'm saddened to see sometimes there are some rotten apples that give the area and the field a bad rap. The vast majority of business leaders are high-integrity individuals that want to do the right thing, that play a critical role in the economic success of this country. And I hope it's an area that will continue to be of interest to graduating Cornell students for many years to come. Great. Well, Irene, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a fantastic conversation and always a great opportunity to hear from one of Cornell's most accomplished alumni. So thank thank you. you. Thank you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team, Harrison Job, Michael Brady, Caroline Wright, Bernardo Espinoza, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host, Serena Elavia. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. And special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center and Resonate Recordings for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.